Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Dr. Emmanuel Kreike, the author of Scorched Earth, Environmental Warfare as a Crime Against Humanity and Nature, published by Princeton University Press just this year, 2021. Dr. Emmanuel Kreike is a professor of history at Princeton University. He holds a PhD in African history from Yale University. And uh, he's also a doctor of science in, in tropical forestry from the School of Environmental Sciences uh, at uh, Wageningen uh, University. I hope I'm saying it right in the Netherlands. Uh, his research and teaching interests uh, focus on the intersection of war uh, population displacement in the environment and society. He has published a number of books, including Recreating uh, Eden, Land Use, Environment and Society in Southern Angola and Northern Namibia, uh, also Deforestation and Reforestation in Namibia, the Global Consequences of Local uh, Contradictions, and Environmental Infrastructure and African History, Examining the Myth of Natural Resources Management in Namibia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013, and also edited a volume with uh, Chester Jordan uh, titled Corrupted Histories, published by Rochester University Press in 2004, among many other publications. Today's book, uh, Scorched Earth, Environmental Warfare as a Crime Against Humanity and Nature, is a rich exposition. And through talking about the book, we will explore how the environmental infrastructure that sustains human societies has been a target and instrument of war for centuries, resulting in famine and disease, displaced populations, and the devastation of people's livelihood and ways of life. Scorched Earth traces the history of scorched earth military 
uh, inundations and armies living off the land from the 16th to the 20th century. The book argues that the resulting deliberate destruction of the environment, which uh, Professor Crikey uh, dubs as enviricide, constitutes total war and is a crime against humanity and nature. And this sweeping global history, Crikey shows how religious war in Europe transformed Holland into a, des- a desolate swamp where hunger and the Black Death ruled. He describes how Spanish conquistadors exploited the irrigation works and expansive agricultural tracts of the Aztecs and Incas, triggering a humanitarian crisis of catastrophic proportions. Crikey demonstrates how environmental warfare has continued and abated into the modern era. His panoramic narrative takes readers from the Thirty Years' War to the wars of Francis Sun King and from the Dutch colonial wars in North America and Indonesia to the early 20th century colonial conquests of southwestern Africa. The book sheds light on the pre-modern origins and the lasting consequences of total war. It explains why ecocide and genocide are not separate phenomena and why international law must recognize environmental warfare as a violation of human rights. Thank you, uh, Professor Emmanuel Kreike, for joining uh, New Books in Environmental Studies. Well, thank you, Ahmed Elmazmi, for giving me this opportunity to uh, discuss the, the book with you. The pleasure is ours. We would like first to learn about the author. If you can share with us a few words about yourself, um, where you grew up, where you went to school, um, how did you shift from forestry to history, and how you became interested uh, in, in the questions that this book actually poses? Well, I'm a, a native of Holland and, and still a citizen of Holland. Um, so I, you know, I studied history there. I was always interested in history, uh, but I was also very interested in, you know, environmental af- affairs, environmental issues. Uh, you know, I had the, the fortunate fortune that when I grew up, right, I, I lived in a small Dutch uh, town. But every summer I went to uh, stay with my grandparents who lived in a small rural uh, town uh, all the way in the west of the Netherlands, um, several hours away. You know, as you know, Holland is a very big country. Um, and, you know, they had their own garden. They grew their own food. Uh, they had, uh, you know, my grandmother had a, had a brother who was a farmer. So we went to the farm also once a week. And, you know, I was very interested in, 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 in that kind of things. And also uh, in, you know, in the war, right? Uh, the Netherlands was, was affected by World War II. So my grandparents, my parents, they all had experienced the war and the dislocation and displacement uh, that had caused. And um, so that was also always an uh, interest of mine. And uh, in this book, right, uh, uh, one of my sort of, Spatial interest, geographical interest was was Africa for various reasons, right? I, I, I once took a course at another university, not my own university, and there was a, a an American historian who talked about African history, and he actually brought all these things together for me because he talked about, 
um, how in Africa, right, this is a lecture or sort of the, the underdevelopment of Africa. And in his lecture, he sort of, uh, what he, he argued is that why is development in Africa not working? And he said, because they're not really directing information and education at the right people. So he gave this example in his lecture of agricultural development, where he said, well, you know, all the extension workers and all the information and reports and uh, subsidies for farming and information, they're all directed towards the men. But he said in the area where I worked, and that was more general, the case in Africa, it's actually women who do most of the agriculture. And that's sort of, you know, I, th I thought that's really fascinating, right? How society and environment and, and agriculture interact. So that, uh, that really stimulated me. And he actually encouraged and helped me um, get a scholarship in the U.S. where I studied African history. Um, and, you know, while I was preparing to do my PhD research in Africa, I decided to, um, you know, to spend some time in Wageningen, which is an agricultural university in the Netherlands, um, to understand better sort of the environment and, and agriculture in Africa. And uh, that's also where my sort of forestry, environmental uh, background um, and agricultural background and training comes from. And I try to apply that during my research uh, in Africa by you know, most of my research was based on interviews with uh, villagers and farmers uh, in, in, in a you know, in a border area uh, between Angola and Namibia, uh, very small villages. So that's where I, I started doing this research. And then I came across, this was an area right north of Namibia, South Angola. This is an area which was turned out to be during my research. Uh, I became aware that there was also a major or the major actually uh, war theater of the apartheid wars, the liberation wars in South Africa, the so-called, what the, South Africans call the Bush War. So people sort of emphasized, oh, the war did this, and this was the impact. So that sort of brought uh, many of my interests uh, uh, together. And that's ultimately, I think, what, what led to this, uh, the, also this book. That's great. And I'm really glad, uh, glad that um, an Africanist by training end up writing such a sweeping global history. And it shows attention to non-Western histories and uh, alternative frameworks of thinking about um, environmental change as well that you discuss as well in the book. So let's move now to the book. And if you can say more about how the book idea itself developed, um, you've talked about your training and, and, um, and work and field work uh, in South Africa, Namibia, Angola. Um, but how did you start thinking about Indonesia, for example, or North America or uh, European history? Uh, if you can tell us about uh, the research process uh, and your writing experience of Scorcher. Right. So you made an important point just now about right, uh, being an Africanist and writing about global history, because that is actually a, a big issue, right? I mean... Generally, the idea is that to study Africa, right, uh, you use uh, concepts and models and ideas and methodology 
developed in European history or in Western history and then see if these dynamics and these models also work uh, in Africa. I come very much from uh, the other side, right? I did do research in the Netherlands on World War II and its impact on, on society. Uh, but uh, you know, my field research in Namibia and Angola actually shaped me very much uh, more. And I, and I started asking very uh, different questions. Um, so, 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 and, and also for this, how did I, how did I come to this book? So I had done all this research and I had, had become aware that this war, warfare and displacement of people, that was actually a, a major thing, you know, that people were displaced from their farms, from their homes to different environments. And then how did they survive in these new environments and even create new, uh, new villages, new societies, new communities, new workable environment, right, in a zone of refuge uh, in Southern Africa. That was actually my first book was about how these refugees actually ended up after displacement by colonial warfare, by the slave trade, by internal wars, how they ended up in what was in effect a wilderness and how, and that my first book was in fact about how did people sort of recreate a livable environment and livable societies, right, in a wilderness after they had been displaced by colonial uh, warfare and the slave uh, slave uh, trade uh, violence? Um, so um, my idea was to actually look for a second book at the impact of these liberation wars, right, in the liberation wars in Southern Africa from the 1960s to the 1990s, where Namib northern Namibia and southern Angola, the areas where I'd done my, my initial field research, were the major uh, war zone. Uh, and I had a lot of stories, tragic stories, proud stories sometimes, uh, stories about rebuilding livelihoods, rebuilding family, rebuilding communities, rebuilding environments. And so... Uh, I did research in other places in Africa too, Mozambique in, in South Africa, uh, about this, this episode, about these liberation wars and what, what the impact was on people's lives, livelihoods and environments. And I actually tried to pitch this to a publisher and the publisher said, well, we're not so interested in Africa as such, right? If you do a global one, then we're more interested. So I started thinking, okay, what can I do? And right. And I decided, well, how do I make this manageable, right, also? Because, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of wars uh, throughout history. Uh, so I, 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 that's, for instance, why I may mainly not only use uh, Dutch case studies, where I use primary research, where I used archival uh, materials, because it was easier for me to get access to. That's why, you know, have you have Indonesia there, because of the Dutch... Uh, colonization wars in that area. Uh, that's why also in Europe, you have the low countries there. And, but then when I started, you know, uh, uh, making presentations about the book, people said, well, you know, it's only Africa and the Netherlands. How representative is that for global warfare, right? So that's when I started to look at sort of comparative cases um, to get to, to sort of be able to uh, show to use a variety of cases, smaller cases, larger cases, some based on primary research, some based on um, 
you know, a, a secondary literature uh, research um, to see, well, if you look at a variety of cases of warfare from the 16th to the 20th century, uh, is that pattern repeated that uh, during war, uh, this environmental infrastructure, right, uh, farms, um, fields, uh, sources of water, canals, um, uh, you know, uh, forests, uh, trees, uh, co tree cover, etc. Uh, is there a pattern? Is that in all these different wars across the globe, north-south, global south, global north, the west, uh, Africa, Asia, is there a pattern there? And, and my conclusion was in the book what I wanted to uh, highlight is that there is indeed a pattern from the 16th to the 20th century that during warfare, this environmental infrastructure, right, this, this environment shaped by uh, by rural communities becomes a major uh, tool of war, uh, but also object and subject of warfare, and thence it being very, very destructive on both on both society and environment. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and in addition to your archival research and um, being from the Netherlands and having access to the Hague's archives, and being an Africanist. Uh, you also have been teaching global environmental history seminars for a number of years now and also courses on war and the environment. Um, so would you say that the classroom was also another laboratory for this book? Oh, yes, it, it, it was. It was. I had my students read, uh, you know, I, 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 I used these examples uh, while I was teaching my students. I read and discussed with my students. Uh, so that was that was uh, that was indeed a, a laboratory for developing. I mean, my students were also very critical of many aspects, uh, and that was enormously helpful. I had them read uh, many of the chapters. I think in one class, yeah, I, I, I had in two in both a graduate and an undergraduate class. I think in two graduate classes, I had them read drafts uh, of 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 the chapters, and in three of my undergraduate classes, it was. Really, yeah, it, it's wonderful to be able to to have the discussions with these with your students, right? And and the students also came from all over the place, uh, so and from all kind of different because uh, the students were not only history students; many were history students, especially in the graduate classes, but also from architecture, from uh, ecology, biology, uh, even engineers. I had in some of the classes, and that that that's that that. That is really enlightening to see how people come from very different uh, backgrounds to uh, to assess these, uh, you know, to, to really make you think about, hey, wait a minute, I hadn't thought about that uh, aspect of it. And and you can also see that right in in sort of the, you also become aware that if you do it that way, if you look at it globally and discuss this also in glo in a global context that some continents are much better covered, right? Despite 40, 50 years of, of trying to uh, break out of this Eurocentrism of history and environmental studies and politics and, and, and genocide, that there are still uh, enormous gaps uh, in, 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 in the literature in terms of sort of the geographical uh, coverage. 
And that's what the students also brought out, right? The students would say, okay, you, you're studying this in the Netherlands and in Belgium and in North of France and in Italy, but what about, um, say, Tibet? Or what about, uh, right? What about uh, Chile? How did that work there? So, again, you know, that it's impossible to cover this. This is, this is quite a big book already with 10 chapters, as you said, right? Uh, but it's, of course, uh, so, so what this is, it's sort of a, a, a tableau also, an impressionist painting that sort of highlights, hey, wait a minute, you know, if you, if you look at this entire large period of almost 500 years and you look at cases across, uh, uh, across the globe, you do seem to see a pattern uh, where um, this environmental infrastructure right, is, is what people not only fight in, but also fight about and fight with, right? Um, because that's also, that, that comes in later also, there's also an environment and an, 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 an economic angle to it, which I maybe have a little bit underplayed in the book, which I now with, with hindsight, I'm realizing that, that I should have maybe more done with the the idea that war actually can pay, not only that it's costly, I think what I emphasize in the book effectively is that war is very costly in terms of the environmental impact, the costs on nature, the cost on the environment, the cost on for human society. But I think I, I, I should have highlighted perhaps more sort of also that this means also economic costs, that it's not only costs that are in terms of uh, human trauma and human lives, right? But that are also real sort of economic costs also to the destruction of this environmental infrastructure and the environment itself in terms of sort of the economics of war or the costs of war. I, I think it is there in the book, but I think I, I, I might... Uh, I might have stressed that uh, more explicitly. I, I think you, you've done a great job in really telling the environmental dimension of, of war history that we don't really get to encounter in most of military histories. The environment is just a backdrop to all of these big events, right? Um, mm -hmm. And much has been written about the economy of war and war machines, but not much about nature and how um, scorched earth, something that, you know, has been a trope in, in literature and in, in poetry and history writing, um, has been circulating for a very long time, but uh, we don't really understand quite well uh, how the environment is uh, inflected and, and how it's uh, connected um, to, the, to the experience of war. Um, so, for what it's set to do, this book has done a great job. And more about the architecture of the book, you mentioned that the book is divided into chapters which are organized um, chronologically and connected thematically. I really enjoyed the connections that you make sometimes between the, the different chapters and different empires and different environmental infrastructures. Uh, you open these chapters with quotes from primary sources, which give it gives the, the reader the impression of the sort of archival sources you're dealing with. Um, and you end these chapters with conclusions that foreground the impact of war 
on both um, civilian populations and environmental infrastructure. The book is also supplemented uh, with captivating illustrations and very useful maps, which I enjoy in good in, in history books. Maps are usually not really the focus. Um, and I, I think that the book uh, and, and its chapters can be read as standing alone uh, complete narratives uh, in separate chapters, or it can be read as connected geographically, politically, temporally, uh, or thematically, which make the book really a great source for both undergraduate teaching and graduate seminars, as well as an informative starting point to launch a research journey about a given part of the world from the early modern to the modern period. Uh, moving to the sections of the book, um, so the introduction in Viricide, Society, and Total War. In uh, the introduction, what do you mean by uh, Enviricide, which is a central concept in this book? And why is it important to re-periodize its history centuries back uh, to, historic, to historicize it on a global scale uh, rather than tracing it to Europe in the 20th century, as you argue in the introduction? Well, those are two big questions. So the uh, first yeah, one, can, why? Uh, yeah, with the Enviricide. What, what do we mean by Enviricide? Yeah, Enviricide. Why Enviricide? Why, why do I use that term? Why a new term, right? Because we have already Ecocide and genocide so why would you right in terms of the book is about crimes against humanity crimes against uh, nature i think that it, it, i'm using this term to highlight to try to make the argument that the two are actually intimately collected right now they are not uh, the, the 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 context of the development of these ideas about genocide and ecocide is the post-world war ii era right uh, Lemkin and, and the idea of genocide in humanitarian law developed in, in, in the late 40s, 1950s. Ecocide is a term from, uh, from the uh, 60s, uh, from the Vietnam War, right, in response to uh, the use of Agent Orange uh, and other chemical warfare in, in uh, Vietnam. Um, my argument is that the two are, that the reason why those two are separated is because they were created, they were thought out, they were produced um, in, 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 in the context of a world where we thought that nature and culture were separate, completely separate spheres. And you can see that in, 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 in many ways. But one example in international law is, for instance, the very sharp distinction between crimes against humanity, which sort of genocide is sort of the, the, the crime of crimes against humanity, against human culture, against uh, human ideas and human society. And on the other hand, there's an entirely separate uh, body of law, international law, and that includes uh, environmental uh, crimes. Um, but, um, right, these are seen as entirely separate. That has a lot of consequences. For example, um, non-Western societies and pre-modern societies are usually seen as being more in nature than in culture. Hence, warfare that damages environment, uh, right, in the context of the non-Western or pre-modern world is usually seen as a war against nature, against natural resources, 
rather than a war against genocide. This has a lot of implications uh, for today because um, much of the warfare in the non-Western world, right, takes place in rural areas that are considered to be nat nature, more nature than culture, dense automatically sort of the the laws, the international laws that are seen as applicable to a conflict like that tend to be more the uh, the laws the, lo the laws that apply to environmental dis destruction. Also, of course, environmental destruction in our society is still seen as less uh, critical than actually direct destruction of human property and human lives, right? There is a hierarchy still, right? We, we're trying to address that with the whole debate about global climate change and what we need to do, but it's still a fact that the two are sort of in a, a hierarchical uh, uh, relationship and crimes against uh, humanity are seen as, as more, uh, more criminal. Uh, so, for instance, there has never been a conviction of uh, environmental destruction during wartime. There, are, there is a group of international lawyers and there are several nations that are actually uh, trying to make uh, uh, wartime environmental destruction uh, a crime, uh, an international crime at the same level as, as humanitarian crime. But right now that is, that is not the case. So in order to sort of break beyond that sort of nature-culture dichotomy, which is exemplified by this very clear separation of humanitarian law, right, with genocide at its apex, and uh, environmental uh, destruction, right, with ecocide as its apex. That's why I'm 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 deploying this idea of environment right? Uh, that is then aimed at not just nature and not just culture but actually at the reality on the ground, right? Which is in our 21st century. The fact is that most of this earth, probably all of this earth is actually co-shaped by humans. So is in fact environmental infrastructure. And in one way or another, humans are both dependent on that environmental uh, infrastructure and the shapers of environmental infrastructure. And this, this uh, concept environment side by combining as it were uh, by, by, by trying to bridge this nature culture, culture cap, uh, gap this, uh, by, by bridging this uh, gap between uh, genocide and ecocide uh, it focuses the, the, the narrative directly on the fact that actually war actually deploys and employs and uses and takes place in an in a in a in a in a global uh, environment that is deeply shaped by people right and that people are dependent on and that that there is also an awareness actually amongst the belliger belligerents that people are dependent on and shaping that environment right that's why it's a main target of war right if you apply scorched earth to the enemy, they have nothing to eat, right?
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off indeed um and that has been sort of um uh, again a, a trope that we find from classical times to the present um from you know the romans and the greeks all the way to um, agent orange and, and other chemical you know weapons used uh, that destroys both human populations and um, the environment um, but in the book, you argue that it's important to trace this history beyond 20th century Europe, which is usually the focus of genocide studies. Um, why do you think it's the case? Why do we need to retell uh, this history and periodize it to the early modern rather than the 20th century? That is a, an excellent question. Uh, why is that important? Uh, my main uh, objective was to uh, address with this the whole discussion about the origins of total war. Total war, um, right, is, is usually, right, or, originally in the literature, World War II was seen as the origins of total war, right? Then uh, World War I, right, about 10, 15 years ago, it shifted to World War I. And after that, people started pushing this back to more recent time, you know, the, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic uh, Wars, right, where there was sort of both in practice and in theory that people thought in terms of total war, everything needs to be mobilized for the war. Now, I found, well, as an Africanist, I was a little bit skeptical about the Eurocentric, right, uh, Eurocentric emphasis because much history is is still very Eurocentric. Uh, well, the whole idea about development, right, is is very Eurocentric. Um, so, I, I, I was curious about. I wanted to push that 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 story about the origins of total war, right? As if because there's an economic uh, side, I guess, to it. Uh, a developmentalist side to defining total war as European as a European and modern invention, in, in, in invention, right? And that is that it's linked to uh, technology and to science uh, and to a certain, I don't know, it, it, this seems contradictory, but also to a certain rational scientific mindset. Uh, then, of course, a dark side of it, right? <laughs> Total destruction. But the total mobilization for war, that somehow it's only modern Western societies that are actually able to mobilize 
uh, a society totally and rationally to completely gear it towards war, right? That's, I think, how usually total war is, is, is seen. So I have first an issue with, well, do you need a modern European technology science mindset to do that, right? As an Africanist, I have a sort of visceral reaction to that. That's, I think, one. The second one is I think there is an issue with that, right? Because what is usually the focus is the mobilization of resources. But what about the other side of this equation of total war? And that is, it's not only the total mobilization of, um, of a society, right? And all the resources. It's also, total war also means that everything becomes a object, a subject, a tool, a victim, a resource in war, right? So the planning idea, mobilizing resources for war, I think that's a very top-down idea of what is total. It's, it's, it's sort of the viewpoint of the elite. It's the definition of the elite, right? Because then I came across, right, in the Americas, but also in Europe, especially in the 18th century. That's why I have three chapters on the 18th century, right? The 18th century is supposed to be, is the age of reason. It's the age of limited war, rational war. People were aware, the elite was aware that uh, the wars were very destructive. You needed to maintain the, uh, the rural economic base, right? The tax base of your societies. So that's, right, that's the reasoning, right? Uh, for a more scientific, rational way of war that supposedly arose in the 18th century, right? Um, right. But as you can see, that, that it is the elite that plays a role in this, right? But what in so what I found in these chapters about the 18th century, yes, the elite was talking like that and saying, yeah, we need laws of wars, rules of wars. We need courts, military courts. We have uh, a whole logistical apparatus to fight wars, right? With forts and magazines, uh, stores, um, etc. Right? But that only looked at sort of the planning, the elite, the leadership, the top-down viewpoint of what total war was, right? Because at the bottom. The farmers, what I found especially uh, struck me with doing this research in the 18th century, is actually for the farmers, right? Uh, the people in the rural uh, rural communities uh, in, the, in, in the countryside, nothing actually changed because they were still the people who had to feed the soldiers, right? Who had to supply carts to transport the soldiers, who had to feed the horses, who had to uh, house, uh, shelter, feed, um, protect the soldiers against the elements. So from that sort of uh, bottom-up right, uh, perspective, these farmers and these villagers, these people in the countryside, and also in, in, in the towns, of course, they were totally used, totally mobilized, right? So I think that idea of that total mobilization is the sort of the uh, definition of total war is actually a focus on the top-down, right? It's a top-down focus. It's an organizational planning focus. 
And it's a focus that ultimately focuses also on the military rather than on the impact on civilians. And with my book, I wanted to sort of highlight what is the impact of all these military expeditions and campaigns actually on the people on the ground especially in the rural areas, because the rural areas is where militaries, um, the militaries operated. That's where the battles took place. That's where they camped. That's where they got their food and all their supplies from. And that's where they lived and fought and died. Um, so I wanted to emphasize that side of it. So that's why I wanted to push back this, uh, this total, uh, this definition of what's, what was total war. And that's where it's linked sort of to my in to my emphasis on environmental infrastructure, right? Because that environmental in infrastructure is the farms, uh, food stores, uh, fields, uh, livestock. That is actually where the rural po- that the rural population depended on, but that is also what these large armies uh, depended on. So I think that's 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 where I try to bring it all uh, together. You know, total war being about control and access to and appropriating uh, the key environmental infrastructure that was shaped by and by the rural population and that they were uh, dependent on. And by all of that, your book contributes to global environmental history, genocide studies and military history by approaching, and I'm quoting you, environmental infrastructure as not only a tool and subject of war, but frequently also an object and a prize of war. Um, The book is uh, divided into 10 chapters and they are uh, broadly organized in four sections. The first section, War, Environmental, Infrastructure, and Envirocide. And we've talked about um, the the concept of Envirocide, but how would you define uh, an environmental uh, war? What constitutes it? How can we uh, look at uh, a certain war and, and call it uh, an environmental? Um, and uh, basically, how does it undermine and destroy uh, rural livelihood? If you can uh, give us examples from the chapters. Yeah. So, so what I try to do is the chapters. Some of the chapters are really focused on really. Uh, small periods of time and, 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 and small spaces. Others are much more uh, uh, spatially much wider and, and look at, you know, they, they work on a different time scale. Some work on a very micro scale, some work on a macro scale. So let me, let me use some of the macro scales for, for the, for the, for, 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 to, 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 to highlight some of these uh, issues that you brought up. Um, so it's very interesting to see Right. So, uh, some of these chapters, including the chapters on the on, on the Americas, are actually based on secondary literature, of, of my reading, a sort of rereading of, of some select uh, secondary uh, uh, secondary literature. Right. So, and of course, the literature on the Americas, the conquest of the Americas, environmental change in the Americas, the demographic impact of. Uh, contact right with the with the with the European settlers uh, uh, settling uh, uh, the Americas and bringing diseases and causing the demographic and also political uh, collapse ultimately of uh, you know uh, indigenous American uh, societies. Uh, 
uh, at large, right? There's an enormous literature on that. So I wanted to include that just to see if I could see identify some of the same patterns of environmental war as I saw in in other more micro-focused uh, cases, uh, right? So, for instance, Holland. I look at Holland in the 1570s, 1580s. Aceh in the 1870s and 1880s, right? Those are more focused. And in those cases, I could, what I try to do is to see, okay, what are they fighting about with, right? And, and you know, if you look at the sort of the, the Aceh war, you saw that the Dutch, the Dutch military very quickly shifted to sort of a, a massive scorched earth by, um, by uh, burning down the villages all in, in Aceh, which is on, on in Sumatra in, in Indonesia. Uh, they started burning the, the villages and, and soon thereafter, they actually started systematically destroy also uh, the crops, uh, both the crops in the fields and the crops that were stored, uh, hidden by the villages, often in the villages, just before they, they would abandon the villages when the the, the, the Dutch military would, would attack the villages. Um, so that's sort of the dynamic I was looking at. I was seeing, okay, what is this? Do this society... So, so the setup of, of each of my chapters is sort of assessed to what extent people have... What is the environmental infrastructure that they have, right? The farms, the fields, what are their lives and livelihoods about, the ways of life, how is that linked to the environment, how is that society... That was sort of, my, and then I would look at, okay, what is the kind of warfare? What is being destroyed? Where are they fighting? What are they fighting about? And what is the impact? Right. So, as I, so I, I, I so, so I, I, I did that through these case studies, right? Looking at very detailed 10, 20 years and a, and a small province in the Netherlands or in, or in Indonesia or, and I, I have several other ones in the low countries and Italy and, uh, France and Spain, uh, these cases. So then I, I try to see, okay, can I see those patterns also in the New World? Uh, during the Spanish conquest, the Dutch uh, colonization of the, uh, of, the uh, uh, of, of, you know, in New York, the, 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 the Hudson Valley, uh, English settlers, French settlers, you know, in Quebec, um, are they doing similar things? And, but of course, I was using here the secondary literature. And what struck me immediately is that this nature-culture dichotomy or a similar dichotomy was working in the historiography. So it, very interesting, sort of the histories about uh, the Americas, you can separate them. There is a separate, an entirely separate literature on the actual conquest of the Americas by the Spanish, by the Dutch, by the English, by the French, right, by the Portuguese. And it talks about the, the political and the military conquest and battles and engagement and military. It, it's very focused on sort of military elements and fighting and actual war. And then there's a separate literature that talks about what I would call the impact of the war. The demographic impact of the war, but it's not linked to the war and the conquest, which is very curious uh, for me as an Africanist, right? Uh, because it's the demographic collapse 
of the Americas is linked to a biological agency, the, 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 the unintended importation of smallpox and other European diseases that the American indigenous Americans had no resistance to, right? So here you get, as it were, a literature about conquest, military, battles, a separate literature on sort of a demographic impact and the decline of uh, American Indian populations. And then there's a third literature, also completely separate, about the environmental impact of uh, European introduced ideas, technology, science, practices, including capitalism, uh, market economies, guns, horses, sheep, cattle, right? And those, it is very, very rare uh, to find any literature that tries to link up these three narratives of the impact, right? So what I try to do is actually, uh, I'm trying to sort of highlight that there are actually these connections between uh, the introduction of diseases, that, that it's linked by two, which you can highlight, two displacement of populations from their environmental uh, infrastructure. So even you see that in the American West, where um, you know, conquering uh, 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 generals like Sherman and Sheridan, who actually did the same, use the same environmental tactics in the Civil War, apply these environmental uh, tactics to the conquest of the West, right? The, 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 the buffalo hint, hunting um, horse-mounted Sioux and other Plains Indians, where they actually, they often don't even seem to try to capture all the American Indians, uh, indigenous American communities, they attack the villages because, right, they know that when they attack a camp, the American Indians, right, try to flee, but they cannot take all their food supplies, their tents, their horses, right, and all their uh, winter equipment with them because they don't have the time when they're attacked by a raid by the U.S. cavalry. So they abandon all this environmental infrastructure, all their food supplies, right, dried, dried meat and, and grains. Uh, and that's actually how the West actually was won. It's not the direct confrontation, not the actual battles. It's actually the U.S. cavalry goes after the environmental infrastructure and captures that environmental infrastructure, then exposing uh, indigenous American groups, right? They're left without food, without horses, without tents, right? In the middle of the winter, because many of these, these the, the Sheridan and other uh, U.S. generals shifted very quickly to winter campaigns, because they knew if they would rob the Indian, the Ameri Native Americans from all their environmental infrastructure, their tents, their food, exactly, right? They would be uh, exposed to the elements, uh, exposed to famine, thirst, freezing weather, and they would have to perish or um, or um, or uh, uh, give themselves up or flee to to Canada, which is exactly what happened. So. Right, I thought that was quite that was actually quite a fascinating part of my journey in writing this book, 
that I could sort of highlight, hey, wait a minute, what is happening there in, in the Americas, right? There is also a war on uh, warfare and very conscious, uh, right? Sheridan and Sherman, their quotes from, from those from the literature they, 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 they wrote themselves, that they actually, uh, they actually do this on, on purpose. They are aware of this and they on purpose, uh, you know, uh, target that environmental infrastructure using it as a tool of war. And indeed, um, and and that's the case that you make in the second section, genocide, ecocide, and envirocide, uh, in which we understand really the relationship between these categories and concepts, and why do we need a new language and uh, and framework to capture certain historical experiences, as you examine uh, in the book. The third section, which I find very interesting, uh, personally, perpetrators, victims, and history. Um, and I would like to ask you this. So we know that agency and intentionality are central to both environmental history, but also genocide studies. And you've mentioned the, the intent, the purpose right there. Um, so how does your book approach them by complicating how uh, perpetrators and victims are thought of and written in history? Uh, how do you suggest we think about uh, agency and intentionality by thinking about war and the environment? Yeah, I think a context that I am, that this is partly directed at, is this idea that there are certain societies that because of, of, their, of their particular path in history were sort of destined or to become perpetrators of genocide, right? This is this is very typical. This is sort of the what they call the Germans Sonderweg, the the German way of war, right? That that um, the Germans, because of their experience of colonial warfare in uh, China uh, the, during the Boxer War, some people have argued in in Namibia and uh, you know the Herero uh, and Nama genocide. In 1904, 1905, uh, the Maji Maji War in, in in the same period in in Tanzania, right? That that actually that experience of these these very genocidal wars that that actually uh, shaped their path towards total war, and that's what actually is what is behind and what causes their genocidal warfare in. Uh, in Europe during World War II, right? That it's an ex- actually a sort of colonial experience with war and 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 conquest that that shapes Western history, German history, uh, in this way. Uh, I find that a little bit problematic, right? I mean, I'm I'm Dutch, so we we have this strange relationship with. Uh, with our German uh, uh, bigger brother in Europe, right, because of World War II and uh, the, 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 the German op- occupation of, of the Netherlands. So, you know, from that perspective, you might say, okay, well, you know, if you can link this to uh, particular long, deep histories, right, that is, the advantage of that is that, that you know who it's coming from. 
right? Who can do these things? So in that German Sonderweg story, right, the Germans have a particular aptitude for it because of their historical experience in the colonies, right? You can say that. But, you know, people like Mamdani, right, who wrote this uh, very influential book, a very key book on the Rwandan genocide, he actually shows, uh, right, that genocide is not only necessarily committed by the colonizers, but can also be committed by the colonized, right? And he he frames this, uh, this as subaltern uh, genocide. So that genocide, not necessarily something that settlers and the, the colonizers do to the to the subalterns, to the non, to the, the people they colonized, that to their victims, but that actually, in effect, victims of genocide can also become perpetrators uh, of genocide. And I think that is a very, very important uh, point, not only historically, because history, history uh, highlights uh, these cases, right? I have a few cases, for instance, the Powhatan uh, Indians and, and the Muncie, right, in their 17th century conflict with respectively uh, the English, English and Dutch settlers, they seem to have tried, uh, right, to actually exterminate the settlers, uh, right? So that you could say that's a, a genocide in order to protect them from further encroachments and further warfare, right? Uh, by the settlers, right? And the Rwandan genocide, that's what Mamdani pointed it out, is very similar because it was, it was actually the Hutu who had been suppressed in the colonial era by the Tutsi, right? And the Tutsi were depicted as sort of the colonizers, the invaders from the outside, uh, the imperialists, um, right? So, and the Tutsi had indeed also done mass killings of of, of Hutu uh, co-Rwandans, right? But the big genocide in 1991, right, was actually the Hutu, right, the subalterns, as it were, who actually turned genocide on their Tutsi former uh, colonizers, as it were. That, that's how it was, right? This was a narrative that was created by colonialism, um, Right and, and not really reality because the Hutu and the Tutsi they speak the same language, right? So, is that really a racial uh, difference? But the, the the fact here is that right that I think it's very important to to highlight that um, that commit perpetrating genocide or perpetrating environment side, and I think that's what the book also highlights by looking at all these different cases that that's not necessarily linked to being a colonizer, uh, being a settler, being European or being non-European, right? But that uh, it, that, that historically it, it many, it, you know, depending on the circumstances, uh, the perpetra- perpetrators can also be victims uh, of a previous round of genocide. And I think that's also important in terms of one of the you know the more practical contributions that the book wants to make, and that is to ident- to say, hey, wait a minute. If you look at history, right, anybody, right, any society, any individuals under certain circumstances can be driven 
to commit a genocide or environmentalcide or ecocide, right? I, I think that's also where the, I, I hint at this, I don't do, do deep into this, but for instance, right, there is a, a, a controversy discussion in, in American historiography of the West about uh, who actually exterminated the buffalo, right? Um, so uh, in, in a sort of conventional way, it was seen this was, the buffalo was exterminated by uh, by West, Western uh, settler um, hunters, right? Buffalo Bill, uh, but then a few historians, in, in, including Andrew uh, Eisenberg and others, have argued: Well, you know, the the indigenous Americans uh, are co-responsible for the extermination of the uh, of the bison, right? With other words, ecocide. And in my book, I sort of use some of this literature to sort of to 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 highlight: Wait a minute, right? these uh, many of these uh, plains, Great Plains societies that hunted and contributed to the overhunting of the buffalo, right? These were actually refugees, refugees from genocidal and environmental warfare in, in further east, right? They were displaced and they were actually communities who tried to survive by hook and crook, by all means possible, in this new Great Plains and Great Plains environment, so they might not have been so um, so benign to the environment, right, as is sometimes portrayed, right, because they were refugees displaced, sometimes desperate ref- refugees displaced. So, in that context, you can wonder, right. Did they really have the luxury to sort of uh, right to to do a sustainable hunt of the buffalo? They had to survive. Their communities of of refugees had to survive. So I think that's also an important um, um, argument I try to make by highlighting that this uh, division between perpetrators and victims of genocide, ecocide, and environmentalcide is not so black and white as we would sometimes like it to be. Indeed, uh, and that's a very important intervention that the book makes. And uh, in the fourth section, Enviroside, Total War, and Resource Wars, we learn more about uh, these connections through the examined case studies, uh, how enviroside complicates really and explicate the way human conflicts and their environmental context are conceptualized around the globe and how that changes over time. Uh, the, the book covers a vast uh, imperial uh, territory and colonial history that really we cannot summarize uh, in this uh, interview, um, but I would invite the readers to go exploring the different chapters from the Dutch to the Spanish to the French, uh, the Austrians, and um, and and the different also non-European cases in the book. I will just highlight uh, a quote uh, from Chapter Seven, which is a global way of war in the age of reason, uh, in viricide and genocide in the 18th century America, Africa, and Asia. Um, you wrote that. When comparing the ways of war in 18th century Europe with warfare in the Americas, Africa, and Asia, the similarities are as salient as the differences. 
uh, I would like you to share perhaps uh, an observation or two about the similarities and differences uh, between these three continents. Uh, how do you think uh, that they represent a global phenomena, but at the same time, we should be attuned to the peculiarities of different local contexts? This, this is actually two questions rolled within one. The, the, uh, I, I'm not saying that there are not Right, his, every history has its peculiarities and its it, it independence dynamics, as well as being related to larger dynamics. Right, but again, one thing where where people see the 18th century as sort of uh, very key is that, right? Some people say in the 18th century that's where, or 18 from the 18th to the 19th century that. Right. This is not a coincidence. This is where, right, where modern Europe, the modern world, is emerging. So also modern ideas and modern practices and modern, uh, right. So this is also where you have this development of modern war, scientific war, rational war. That's the 18th century, right. And then that morphs somehow, right, into total war, right? That is sort of the conventional narrative, right? And what happens in the non-West is that in the non-West is the argument that modernization of warfare doesn't take the same trajectory. That is, in the non-West, even in colonial contexts, so where Europeans fight warfares, conflicts in colonial uh, context, there's a different trajectory to war. And some people claim that there is a continuity, right? So that primitive war, in effect, continues as it were, right? Whereas in the West, in Western battlefronts, war become modern, more scientific, more technology, right? Limited war in the 18th century, and then flips to total war in 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 at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, depending on where people identify the origins of modern war. In the non-Western context, right, you have primitive war, right, or it's sometimes also called petite guerre, the small war, the guerrilla warfare, right, what's now called um, well these. The, these these military um, terms change from day to day, right? Uh, I think we're now asymmetrical warfare is now the term, right? Which is really what they called small war before, right? So anyway, so what you see is a divergence of the ways of war, right? Modern Western war fought on uh, Western battlefields, 18th century, it's limited. 19th century, 20th century, it flips to total war. And then you have the non-Western context, colonial context, where you have actually the small war, which is in a form really of primitive war, right? In effect, if you really look at the literature and how it depicts it. I'm, I'm disputing that in uh, my book. I'm saying this separation doesn't, in, in, in theory, maybe it takes place, maybe in the text, military textbooks it takes place, 
But my argument is that, hey, wait a minute. Yes, there are differences and there, right? And it is shaped by local, colonial and other conditions, of course. But if you really look at how the ways of war develop, there are actually as many similarities between this so-called Western way of war, this modern war, right? And non-Western small war, guerrilla war, that they actually, in, if you look at how, what they actually, right, if you look at what they focus on, what they fight with, and what they fight about, right, you see actually it's a continuation in the sense that it's still environmental war. They still go for the environmental infrastructure, whether it's in the modern West or in, right, in the not only pre-colonial, but also in the colonial context, right? What are these wars about? You see that, and that's what I think I highlight. I mean, we know that for, uh, right, for for total war, because scorched earth is an integral part of modern total war, right? That, it, you know, you can see that in World War One, you can see that in World War Two, right? It's very clear, Um so what I do in sort of the last section of the book, I focus on uh, non-Western cases, colonial warfare, right? The American West, the conquest of the American West, the conquest of Aceh, Indonesia, uh, and also the conquest of South, Southwestern Africa by, by the Portuguese and by the South Africans and the Germans, that they actually use, they keep continuing that same uh, type of environmental uh, warfare. Right. There is also a shift, and the shift is that these that these colonial armies are no longer entirely living off the land, right? But they're still doing scorched earth to deny the opponents to shorten the war by denying uh, their opponents uh, access to food, right, uh, supplies, uh, shelter, right with other words, of the environmental infrastructure that not only the military depend on, but also the civilian population depends on. So, right, so there is a shift, but at the same time, I think there is in, in the sort of the, 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 the general way of war, there is a continuity in the sense that they still uh, fight with, about, and through uh, this environmental infrastructure, which, of course, is is what the rural population also is dependent on. So in terms of the impact, right? That's why I try also with the, right? Uh, especially in the case studies, right, what I've tried to do is to highlight not only the practices of the, the war farers, so the soldiers, but especially the experience of the people exposed to the warfare, so the farmers and villagers, and what, how they experience uh, the impact of war and the destruction or uh, capturing, uh, stealing, plundering villages or their displacement from their key environmental infrastructure. How do they experience that? What is the impact, right? And which you then see that there is this constant since warfare right throughout this period uh, is uh, scorched earth 
scorched earth that focuses on capturing or pillaging or destroying or displacing population and the opponent from this key environmental infrastructure, right? That remains constant uh, throughout uh, this period. So that is that is not something that is new, right? But the context can be can be different, right? I mean the Environmental context is different. The, so, for instance, if you if you look at this, um, the colonial warfare in Southern Africa, in Southern Africa, the invaders, the Portuguese and the British, South Africans, they they wanted to fight in the dry season because they wanted to evade malaria and horse sickness that affected their their military capability. In the American West, right, in the plains. The uh, the U.S. Army preferred to do its campaigns in the winter, because in the winter the American Indians, the Plains Indians, with their with their um, uh, their mobile villages and their horses, were the least mobile. Right during the winter, the American uh, Native Americans of the Plains, they were totally living off the food supplies they had. Uh, obtained during the summer and the spring hunts. And these food supplies were in their villages, in their tents, right? And so if they could destroy the tents, capture the tents, right, and the food supplies, they were actually undermining uh, critically, uh, they were defeating the American Indians. So there you see, right, there, there, there are differences and historical peculiarities. But the overall... Right, the way of war remained throughout this 16th to the 20th century. It remained uh, capturing and using as a tool uh, and as a price of war the environmental infrastructure that rural populations and urban populations ultimately also, of course, uh, entirely dependent on. Indeed. Uh, I don't think anyone after reading your book will ever be able to overlook the environmental cost of warfare and how it's really embedded in, in uh, throughout history in, in, in violence and human experiences of domination. And I really enjoy the fact that you give examples uh, from both uh, European imperial powers, but also from examples such as the Asante Kingdom um, and the other examples you've given um, of non-European uh, forces that are shaping uh, warfare history. Uh, well, we've taken a lot of your time, Emmanuel, and I would like to continue talking about uh, the different chapters, which really I can't do them justice in this uh, interview. And I really recommend uh, the listeners to pick up the book and really enjoy the, the narrative flow, which really reads well as just a good history and um, learn about the different parts of the world and how they've experienced uh, warfare and the environmental costs of uh, warfare uh, from the bottom up, not just told from uh, the perpetuators uh, alone. Uh, as, as a final question, uh, what are you working on now? Um, if you have any current projects or things that you are hoping to work on, I'm not expecting you to be working during these difficult times, but if you would like to share uh, any of your um, current or future projects. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm now working, I'm about halfway with a, a project that takes this story up after World War II, um, right? Because again, World War I and World War II 
everybody knows and understands that this was uh, highly destructive. I, I don't need to, re- you know, and there was genocide and people have been prosecuted for genocide at the Nuremberg trials and other places, right? That this was a criminal uh, war. These were criminal wars. Um, but uh, interesting enough, uh, people have not looked that much. Well, an exception is maybe the, the Vietnam War with Agent Orange, uh, because that's actually what what uh, generated the idea and, and the concept of genocide, of ecocide, I should say, right? <clears throat> But again, that is seen as a war against nature rather than at people. So what I, uh, I I'm doing now is is a uh, look at uh, look at, um, at at insurgency and counterinsurgency warfares post World War II, um, and ho- how they were also marked by uh, by uh, environmental uh, ways of war and. Um, so there I'm actually making the argument that the, uh, that despite the fact that, uh, post World War II, we have the development of international human rights law and also increasingly international environmental laws, but that despite, uh, this development of environmental, uh, uh, international laws and, uh, and international human rights, that this has not uh, oddly enough, or sadly enough, uh, changed the face of war in uh, the non-West, uh, especially in the global South, especially during the um, the Cold War. And of course, this is not just global South wars, right? And an ex- and then and 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 a responsibility and an agency, a perpetratorship by non-Western uh, global South governments. Because this is during the global uh, during the Cold War, many of uh, these wars in the global South were actually uh, they were called proxy wars. I, I don't think that's totally right because there were many local uh, dynamics explaining these wars too. But nevertheless, they took place in the in 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 in, in the context of uh, the Cold War, the East-West uh, confrontation. Right, but in the global south, the Cold War was actually far from cold. It was very hot, actually. And so, what I'm doing is I'm looking at uh, 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 several conflicts in the global south during the uh, uh, Cold War, um, and I'm tracing there also the sort of uh, what is this again? Sort of does 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 this this environment environmental warfare actually continue? And actually. I'm finding that they actually uh, intensified and are less about living on the land, but more about denying resources to an enemy, right? These are all have aspects of uh, liberation wars, unconventional wars, guerrilla wars, uh, insurgency wars, in which there is this idea that how do you compact an insurgency? This is after Mao, right? Mao said guerrillas have to be like the fish in the water, right? The fish in the ocean. The ocean feeds and shelters and is the element in which the war takes place. So the Western counterinsurgency model or the colonial counterinsurgency model was not to remove the fish. Its model was to remove the waters, to drain the ocean, right? And so that is sort of the metaphor, but I think in many ways it's also the reality of many of these insurgency and counterinsurgency wars 
So I'm I'm going to look at the uh, the Dutch uh, 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 the decolonization war against the Dutch uh, attempt to recolonize the Indonesia in the in uh, in the late 1940s, uh, the the French Indochina War, uh, the French Algerian War, uh, the uh, Nigerian Civil War in the 70s, and the wars in Southern Africa, the Liberation Wars in Southern Africa in uh, Namibia. South Africa, Angola, and uh, and Mozambique, to sort of trace, see if I can find that uh, genealogy and that pattern of warfare uh, in uh, on a on a global scale in the Cold War, in post World War, um, in the post World War to uh, world to identify you know, to what extent this international human rights law and international development have actually identified uh, this environmental uh, warfare and if they have responded to it. And, and my conclusion at this moment is that it has that international human rights law and international uh, environmental law and international development have entirely failed to acknowledge the impact of this kind of warfare in the global south with disastrous uh, with a disastrous impact, uh, and, and I think this this played a, a big role in the underdevelopment uh, of the global South in po- in the post World War uh, era that has not been uh, acknowledged. So I, so I hope to highlight that in uh, in this uh, new book. That sounds that like a very much needed uh, sequel for Scorched Earth, and we will be looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing uh, your thoughts and uh, your book with us today. And thank you for the listeners uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored scorched earth environmental warfare as a crime against humanity and nature, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Environmental Studies. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.